The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. All right, you're listening to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. G'day. All right, so on today's show, we're going to talk about two of our favorite subjects, food and wine. Uh, Journalists, that's what we love. In a few minutes, we're going to hand it over to our colleagues in Hong Kong, and they are going to take us through the latest machinations with a Chinese winemaker. And I don't know if you've ever had Chinese wine. I had the, the pleasure of having it when I was in China. I have, I have not. You can tell us all about it off air. It's quite so something. <laughs> Excellent. We look forward to that segment. First, though, we're going to dig into the most successful IPO of the year, Beyond Meat, which produces vegetable-based meatless burgers, if you will, um, is up 800% in just 12 weeks since going public. It's putting bigger names like Uber and Lyft to shame. Here to explain what is going on with this company is Amanda Gomez. Amanda, welcome to the program. Thanks. Okay, so first, let's take a step back. Explain to me what Beyond Meat is. They make plant-based burgers and sausages. They use yellow peas, mung beans, sunflower seeds combined with like canola oil and coconut oil. Lots of salt, I think. Decent amount, yeah. Okay. (laughs) A lot less water than traditional burgers, 90% less water. But overall, it's it's just a plant-based burger, and right now it's the only one on the stock market. So basically, it's it's a veggie burger, but it's it's the right. whole idea behind this is it's it's made to look and taste like meat, as opposed to when you bite into a veggie burger, you see, oh look, there's some peas, there's some carrots, there's some whatever it is. Yes, this looks exactly like a burger. Have you had one before? I'm curious. I've had the sausage. It yeah. does taste does it just taste like, like sausage. Meat? Yes. Okay. Um, I, I've had the burgers. Both there's an Impossible Burgers. I think they're fine. They are pretty salty, which you know, if you're looking for health benefits. You're not necessarily at the moment going to get them from this, but you know that they're fine. All right, so let's talk about this IPO because it's done exceptionally well. Like it's crazy well. It's up, as I said earlier, eight hundred percent. I just like what what's going on. I don't quite understand uh, the appetite, hardy har har, for this stock. Why are investors so excited about it? Because there there are other companies. They, this company has a really big competitor, Impossible Foods, which makes the Impossible Burger now sold at like Burger King. Okay. But they're private. Beyond Meat is the only one that is on the public market right now. And that's why I think investors may have FOMO over it. But it's also, it's also growing pretty well, right? So I think we, we were looking at earnings earlier this week for the mm-hmm. second quarter. It was up revenue was up two hundred and eighty seven percent. If I remember the exact number, right? So it is growing nicely as well, or very well, in fact. Is it profitable? It's not profitable. Okay, not yet. Okay, it's expected to have an adjusted profit this year, which is rare. Okay, so uh, Amanda, when was this company uh, started? It was started like ten years ago by um, Ethan Brown. He's a current CEO. Okay, and I mean, can I ask you? I don't know how like how much you've looked into this, but what is one of the problems of? I mean, why isn't it profitable in a decade's time? Like, I, I don't know enough about food production or anything like that. But what what's kind of the sticking point? 
Well, making this type of burger, it takes a lot of more science than a typical mm -hmm. burger. Um, so there is research and development that goes behind it. There's a lot more. Um, there's distribution going into it. It's a lot of costs related to it. And it's it's also new. So it's, it's not something that they are trying to mimic from another company. It's something that they're creating from the ground up. And... It's, it's also the regulation. It's um, complying with the regulatory requirements from the U.S. government, from different states. There's uh, labeling as well. There's working with uh, grocery stores to get their products in the counter that they want. So they prefer to have it in the meat counter, not in the veggie section oh, okay. of the freezer. Yeah, that's got to be a, bit, a big thing, right? If you want to be Beyond Meat and say, look, we're not just, although we are veggie, we're not just a veggie burger. We are something different and you should count us as meat. But that's going to be a regulatory issue as well in many respects, right? Right, because there are already like meat companies lobbying to make it so that Beyond Meat cannot label their burger a burger or call it meat or anything like that. Although there's also competition growing, right? So you mentioned Impossible Burger, which is a, a similar startup company. Right. But... There are also regular meat companies that are getting into this uh, non-meat-based yes. meat-like product. So former Beyond Meat investor Tyson Foods is getting into it. Mm. And Kellogg already has its brand of Morningstar Farms. And that's already more established. Right. So let's think about the, the, the appeal to the consumer for this. Okay, so you don't want to eat meat. Fine. But what, what else are they... Are they pitching it at? You mentioned water beforehand. So they're trying to pitch this as, and quite successfully it seems, as you know, a product that requires far less potentially environmentally harmful issues, whether it's water use, whether it's um, cow burps and farts and other things that we think about for CO2 emissions. So just how does that plan out? Well, it, it gives an option to consumers who don't want to let go of meat mm. and you know they may want just a product that it makes them feel better to eat because yeah. they, it does use less green gas house emissions and water and land and it's helpful when you have an, a fast growing population and you need to feed more people yeah actually I, I think it's also started coming into the political debate right so not so much in the presidential debate level here in the US but um, just one of the stories we wrote the other day one of the comments on Twitter we got was, um, I've tasted one of these, they're awful. I, why can't we just get our regular burgers back as if they've been taken away? And that's part of the Democrat versus Republican issue here. Like the, I think was it was the AOC uh, on the Democrat side saying, look, as part of the Green New Deal we're proposing, you've got to think about how, you, how much meat you eat and maybe you should eat fewer hamburgers. And the right's taken that as, oh, well, now they're telling us what to eat. And so Beyond Meat's almost become, a sort of by default and not by its own choice, a, a part of the political debate in this country. Yeah, and it's it's a matter also of consumer choice, and mm. consumers want options, not just on how things taste, but how it makes them feel. If they make it makes them feel better for doing their part yeah. to to help the environment, then it, it's a it's a win for Beyond Meat yeah. for sure. And hey, whether it's in the same counter or on the counter next door, you can still go and get your regular burgers. Right. All right, but let's um let's turn back to the stock and the stock price here. So, um, Anthony. It was, what, a couple of days ago mm. they reported their earnings. Yeah. And then they said that they were going to offer more shares, right, yeah. another offering, um, which if 
you know, remind me about this, but they're still in the lockup period with their investors as well. Well, not anymore, because to well, do this, they okay. decided to say, you know what, let's forget about well, this wonderful lockup period. Actually, I'm kind of curious about that. Like, how does that work exactly? How do you have a lockup period and then everybody's like, oh, never yeah, so mind. The, so so the, tell the, me what happened. The deal here, when you do an IPO, is usually... Um, the company and the the banks that are underwriting the deal will say, look, let's have a lockup period, i.e. you people who are insiders who own the stock before we went public, especially executives, but also, you know, in this you've got Kleiner Perkins and, and several other um, uh, venture capital and other investor firms. Um, let's make sure you can't sell for a few months just so we can make sure that, that people who want to own the stock uh, in the in the in the uh, stock market, actually do own it, and that we get a sense of where the price is going. Let's make sure we don't complicate matters. It's not a regulatory thing; they don't have to do this. But generally, companies will say, "Look, for ninety or one hundred and eighty days, we'll have a lockup period, so we won't sell our shares." Well, lo and behold, you know, when the stock is, you know, was when they first thought about this, the stock was. Um, Almost nine times higher than where it started, mm-hmm. uh, and when they announced the earnings, they said, "Look, we're going to we're going to weigh the lockup period. We're going to sell three and a half million shares. I think it was most of which are being sold by insiders. So the company is going to get you know, fifty million dollars, whereas six hundred million or so, based on current prices, is going to go to all the people." Uh, in the firm who've decided they want to sell. So Kleiner Perkins is selling. Ethan Brown, the CEO, is selling a bit as well. Hmm. You go down the list, you've got a lot of insiders who decided, you know what, we're going to sell. And at this point, you think selling stock, if you're an insider, always makes us feel a little bit wary. But when the stock's gone up that much, you think, think, so you're taking advantage of a high stock price, you're the insiders, you know best, what should we the outside investors be worried yeah, about. Yeah, well, here. they'd be bananas not to take advantage of an 800% respects, yeah. climb. But they could and, also have waited, and if it was a 400% climb or 500 or even a 1,000% climb after six months, why not do it? It's not as if the money's being raised for the benefit of the company. They're getting a small slither. It's all about um, the insiders cashing out three months earlier than they would have done. Um and how much was was it all the lockup shares or just a, a small oh, no, actually, portion? That, yeah, I mean, so that can you is explain the, that? That is the, the what's good about this. And if, if you want to look for a silver lining here, uh, I'm not again. I'm not saying anything is nefar- nefarious is happening, but it makes you worry that something is going on at any company that. So, does they, this so they didn't take all the lockup shares. No, no, in so this, so, so Kleiner Perkins is going from like twelve percent to eleven percent. Okay, I mean that, that that seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, so it's basically it means that you're getting you're getting a fair amount of money for selling far fewer shares. But again, it's. It just doesn't give a very good feeling. It always smells a bit odd when a company allows its, its insiders to sell far earlier than they should have been allowed to do. Or, I mean, if you look at the direct listings, right, and that was the whole rationale behind it because you can, everybody can just kind of sell when they want to sell and there's none of this, like, you know, lock-up business. And, yeah, but you again, know, you could, you, they could also have sold at the IPO, right? So you could have said, I am Kleiner Perkins, I am Ethan Brown, I am whoever it is in the company or one of the investors. One of the directors, I am going to sell X amount of shares at the IPO. And actually, in some respects, there's no no problem waiting. The whole point of an IPO is to test the ground for how right. much and particularly the in worth. this particular company, right? Because there is no real comp for Beyond Meat. Absolutely I mean, not. It's no. like people keep. I, I keep seeing this on Twitter. Everyone's like, "Well, this is what Campbell Soup is," and I was like, oh, "This is totally different yeah. than Campbell Utter, Soup." Utterly irrelevant. I mean, whether it's uh, the type of product, whether it's the growth, whether it's the peel. Uh, of the thing, it's it's this is a completely different company to anything out there at the moment. And growth alone, it's a completely different company. But again, they're, they're, as long as the company continues to produce and stays on track, 
there shouldn't be much to fear from this. But if you're an investor, look, I mean, look what's happened to the stock. It went down sort of 10%-ish the day after this was announced. That's not so bad. A, it's had a huge I mean, run-up. <laughs> B, you always know when a, and a secondary offering is coming that the price is going to drop somewhat. Yeah. It's just a question of how much. And maybe, given the huge run-up over such a short period of time, a 10% drop and then stabilizing. It's not as if it's dropped further. Um isn't is actually not a bad thing. Look, if you're one of the sellers in this, you think it doesn't matter. I'm getting a decent chunk of change or more. Um, the stock hasn't gone down. Investors seem to think, you know what, well, we're a bit annoyed you're doing this this early, but we'll give you a pass and we'll pass on the stock as well for a moment. Let's see what happens in the next few months. Okay. All right. Amanda, before we let you go, I have a question for you, which is, I mean, what what is, if in looking at this company, what are the risks or is, is there one risk that, that you see that, you know, maybe this isn't what it's cracked up to be? Like the biggest risk is probably sourcing the product. Uh-huh. The, the, you mean the like getting the stuff? Like yeah. When, and that's like what? Like vegetables like peas and, stuff? and oil. Yes. We're um, worried about pea shortage. It's yeah. a new thing really? to add. I like that. Actually, no, it's, 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 it's a serious it's, point. Is it because everybody's trying to use peas to make fake meat? Or it's is it... also because farming is is a, is a risk. One oh, year there's flood in, one year there's drought. It's it's just a common risk in agriculture. Again, if you're relying on one product in particular, it could be really hard, or it will push up your cost if you have to go elsewhere to get it. And you look at the flooding in uh, the central part of America in recent recent months. Yeah, I mean that's utterly devastating. On top of all the other issues that they've had to deal with, um, with uh, you know tr- uh, trade tariffs and stuff. So, you know, if you're Beyond Meat or Impossible Burger or Tyson Foods or anyone else doing this, you, supply chain is a huge risk. All right. Well, we will leave it at that. Uh, thank you, Amanda, for coming on and taking us through it. Thank you. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong with John Foley, who is ordinarily based in New York, but has been swinging back to his old haunts in Asia for the past couple of weeks. John's here to chat with me about a subject near and dear to both of our hearts as people who've lived in China, the joint venture, and even better, wine. Can you uh, fill us in on what has happened with Remy Cointreau and their joint venture disaster in China? So one of the things that is interesting about Hong Kong, Pete, is that a company trading on the Hong Kong stock market can have its shares suspended seemingly forever. And one such company was Dynasty Fine Wines, which I noticed last week had been suspended for six years. And Dynasty Fine Wines is what used to be a joint venture between the French liquor company that's now called Remy Cointreau uh, and a a local Tianjin-based wine company. Uh, which was at the time called Tianjin Grape. And it turns out that this was one of the great hopes for China's uh, burgeoning consumer classes. They set this was this, a long time ago, right? 1980. Right. I was two. They set up this <laughs> joint venture to make Chinese wine, which was going to take initially China and then the world by storm. It didn't, though, work out. And by about 2013, this company, its sales had started to collapse, which was already a problem. But then it also was uh, accused of various accounting shenanigans by an anonymous call put into its auditors. The shares got suspended. Six years later, they've just started trading again. Literally this week, Dynasty Fine Wines is once again trading in Hong Kong, and it is a fraction of its former value. It's something like an eighth. Um, Actually, today, it's actually less than that, probably like a ninth of its peak valuation, which was about 800 million US dollars. Well, it's interesting because it's part of a group of like these very, very early joint ventures when people are coming right at the beginning of the reform period and some some very aggressive, courageous Western executives came in and decided they were going to 
to go into China early and, and get a bit. So, and a lot of them ended up being disastrous. I mean, right. you look at like AMC Jeep is a famous failure. There's been books written about it. McDonnell Douglas thought they were going to partner up with a Shanghai-based airplane company and, and dominate the, the Chinese uh, right. avia, and that helped put them out of business. And in fairness, uh, back in 1980, who knew what China was going to look like? No one could have predicted the way China was going to look in 2019 or even in 2009. And, you know, in fairness to Remy, it put in a very small amount of money. It may have had high hopes, but it didn't bet the farm right. on this company. And, and, and it's doing pretty say, well in China otherwise, right? Like so it didn't. Remy Quantro is doing just fine in China. You know, double-digit sales growth for its yeah, just not dynasty, <laughs> not Cognac, dynasty fine wines part yeah. of it. But but as you say, there are many joint ventures that have started off well and then gone bad. The one that people talk about more recently is Danone, which right. obviously makes yogurt. French company, but that had a joint venture partner in the city of Hangzhou called Wahaha, which it at some point accused of creating a kind of parallel manufacturing chain and and shipping out products. Well, yeah, there was all this uh, upsetness because upsetness is not the word, but um, anger, I guess, at Wahaha because Danone used some perfectly legal but you know tricky mechanism to take control of the joint venture, and so they're like, okay, well, we're now in charge of of strategy, and then of course the Chinese company managed to, yeah. <laughs> to, and to kind of sabotage it through other And meetings. this is true everywhere in the world that you see joint ventures. They're usually a, a kind of tug of war between a more a more powerful partner and a weaker partner. And if the joint venture does badly, then everyone blames the local partner. If the joint venture does well, you get a kind of tussle over who gets control of it. Right. And as China's grown faster, the stakes have got much higher, and the incentive to basically try and scam your joint venture partner, which is basically what happened to Danone, increases. Well, they're kind of in the focus now because China is they've been this big point of like technology transfer, right? That's been the big complaint from the Trump administration and others like, oh, we're being forced to go into joint ventures like in some key sectors, right. automotive, finance, to name two big ones. And China responding to this, Beijing, the government, has unwound some of these requirements and now, you know, foreign capitalists are able to take control of their joint ventures and yet there hasn't actually been a huge rush to unwind some of these structures. Right, because well, actually the time when the companies, like, for example, the financial sector, if you think back, you know, 10 or more years when you had companies like Goldman Sachs, HSBC, Bank of America taking stakes in Chinese financial firms, which they one day hoped they'd be able to take over, that never happened. Goldman Sachs sold its shares in ICBC. HSBC never really got anywhere with Bank of Communications, which was its kind of own Chinese bank. It, uh, now those banks are huge, and the idea that they are takeover targets for Goldman Sachs or HSBC is just so far-fetched. So now Westerners are going back in again, kind of from scratch, setting up new joint ventures, but they're nowhere near as attractive as they were a decade ago when they seemed to be a path to future dominance of these huge Chinese markets. But at the same time, and just to, you know, there, there is still the case that if you're going to go into China, this very sensitive policy environment where private companies are required to have party cells that it does make a degree of sense, you know, to have a local partner in some cases. Yeah. And you've seen or localize, you know, you've seen like McDonald's, Yum China have created local entities in partnership with Chinese joint ventures. Uh, or a lot of the automotive joint ventures have done. Sure, right. Well. Yeah. And I mean some of them seem to be doing okay. So it can work. It it's can just work. I think the the, the, the devil's in the details. I mean obviously yeah. like Remy, for example, just got the idea that Tianjin, you know, which is now mostly famous for enormous chemical factory explosions, was going to be this this famous wine growing hub that ended up being in Ningxia, uh, you know, out west, and and others have done well there. I mean, it's it's hard to 
It's hard to make everything right. I mean, just that's the, the lesson that I take away from this whole thing is that, that Remy was not actually wrong in that Chinese wine is a growth market. I think we found that uh, wine sales have quadrupled in about the last kind of 15 years. It's just that they got their partner wrong. So wine, as you say, has taken off on the literally on the other side of China in Ningxia province, <laughs> not in poor, poor old Tianjin, which is right. basically like an industrial city. So Known you know, for doddering state-owned in, industries right, as well. So, so getting in first <laughs> is not necessarily the best. But, you know, it was Remy Cointreau's sacrifices that made it possible for everyone else to make a pot of money out in Ningxia. Fascinating. All right. Well, thanks for talking to me, John. Okay, guys, that's our show for this week. Thanks to Amanda Gomez, John Foley, and Pete Sweeney for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Lauren Miller, and Brad Bell. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please do share your opinions about our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.